Welcome everyone to the latest episode of Nerd Out, where security professionals come together to discuss some of the latest news in the industry and what may impact businesses and organizations around the world. I'm pleased to be joined today by Bridget Johnson, Travis Moran, and Chuck Egley. Welcome everyone. Let's uh, take a real quick minute to introduce yourself. We'll start with Bridget. I'm Bridget Johnson. I'm Managing Editor for Homeland Security Today. I'm also a terrorism analyst and a security consultant. Travis Moran, a VP with Welland North America and also a uh, pseudo, if you want to call it, drone person. And this is Chuck Egley. I'm a Senior Risk Analyst with Gate15 and in that role I've supported a number of sectors including the water and wastewater sector, automotive sector, and some other sectors as well. Great, thank you everyone. And I'm Dave Pounder. I'm uh, the Director of Threat and Risk Analysis at Gate15. And I also support several of the sectors uh, and industries around, um, around the world. So let's just get into it, everyone. We've got a lot of topics for today, some really uh, engaging topics, but I wanna start off with something a little bit offhand here. And, and, it's, and it kind of ties into some of what we're gonna discuss about, but this weekend, primarily, we saw a really big kickoff on the start of um, professional lacrosse, which is something I know uh, Travis and I share lacrosse in common. Uh, there's, there's golf on. Um, there's still auto racing continuing. And then we've got this week the start of Major League Baseball and the National Basketball Association, uh, that they will be starting their um, seasons this week. The NBA will be down in Orlando in their bubble. Uh, their Disney bubble. And then the baseball is being a little bit more aggressive and they're going to be all over the place. They're going to be playing in their home venues and traveling as if uh, the only thing really different in their season is that there will be no fans. Um, but there are still concerns. You know, there's still a lot of things going on. Fall sports are still up in the air with a lot of colleges and some um, who have moved their seasons. I just saw today that the California High School Association moved some of their uh, fall sports to start later in the fall, as in December, I guess really into winter, and then mostly into 2021. Um, and then we had the NFL Players Association come out this weekend and kind of send a note to the NFL to kind of say, hey, let's do the right thing here. We want to play, but we also want to do it responsibly. So Quick question to kind of get the group started. Um, do we see one of these main sports leagues significantly disrupted by still the uncertain COVID situation? Bridget, you're a big 49ers fan. We know your <laughs> love and affinity for, for Jimmy G and you want to get back to the Super Bowl. So let's start with you on this one. Uh, what do you think? Well, forget Jimmy G. He's, he's proven he's not adept at emergency management, but Richard Sherman, <laughs> I think. Richard Sherman should be like, you know, put in, put in charge of coronavirus response or something because he is on his ball as far as emergency management. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's just, it's really important to remember that risk management is not about prioritizing emotion over safety. And I know that a lot of people want to feel a return to normalcy with the return of sports, but if you imagine the threat is that we know that a particular group is planning on attacking a sporting event or events somewhere. The uniform response wouldn't be to hire an unarmed security guard for each venue and treat the needs the same and possible routes for attack the same. So we have to be really careful about not falling into the trap of rushing security measures 
and I think this is where Sherman and a lot of the other players are coming from, especially when you have a new virus still with unknowns, it's still surprising medical professionals. Um, and there are NFL teams, there are, there are 10 NFL teams in current hotspot states. And two months from now, we don't know what the hotspots hot spots are gonna be. A month from now, we don't know that. So, um, so I'm glad that these guys are buckling down and, and demanding that um, better security measures be put in place before you even, you know, play ball. All right, fair, fair, very, very good points. Um, Travis, you've got the Buckeye Nation behind you. I, th I think <laughs> you've got the the big O, o the big O. Um, what, what uh, from an Ohio, you know, from your perspective, you know, we've already seen the Big Ten as a as a conference, and then the Pac Ten uh, did as well, or Pac Twelve did as well. They they're going to a conference only schedule for for some of their events. I kind of get the sense that that's just the first part and maybe we're going to see a bleed over to pushing the things. Some of these sports are too big of a business to, to kind of cancel all together. What, what do you think, uh, what, what do you think for the outlook for the fall looks like? Bleak. Um, you know, when, when you play these precursor steps out there, what you're doing is you're putting up trial balloons to advertisers and whatnot about what may be coming. So my, my fear is that, that is going to happen. You know, Virginia has canceled all football for the fall. Um, and it, even the bubble construct is the best of them all. I agree with Bridget, the, the, you know, in terms of the, you know, you mentioned Major League Baseball, the travel piece um, is extremely difficult. And where I agree with Bridget wholeheartedly is there's just so many, you know, unknowns of, of, about this. So, my personal opinion, that's all it is, is that we're not going to see a lot, which just obviously is devastating for me, uh, both from you know, having a you know, child involved in, the, in fall sports at the university level and just seeing it you know, as a diversion, uh, a definitely needed diversion. So I'm, I'm pessimistic and um, there's a whole reason, bunch of reasons why I'm, I'm pessimistic, but um, you know, that would take too long to and take away from too much other stuff. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Yeah, this is a, you, your son is at Fairfield, right? Is it that's that's what I remember is. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so he's playing lacrosse at Fairfield, had a great start to the season last year, got it cut off. And and my son is going to Jacksonville University next year to play lacrosse. And it looks like it's already going to be an up in the air kind of fall. So. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that. I did wa I did get a nice reprieve watching a lot of games this weekend of what I could and just tried to kind of touch on what you guys both had mentioned, you know, return to this, trying to pretend like things were normal at the same time, no fans in the stands. Um, turning to you, Chuck, what, what, do, what do you think? From your vantage point, how do you see things for this fall? Uh, Bridget mentioned that, you know, still a lot of unknowns and it seems like when you make plans against the unknowns it may not always work out the best how do you see things yeah i think it'll be really interesting to see how plank things play out um it's hard for me to really envision everything how it's actually going to look but i would just you know the one of the, of the different sports leagues that you mentioned the one i probably track the most and will be tracking the most around this time of the year is baseball and with all the changes that are going to you know, happen there and um, 
you know, not having uh, fans in the stands and things like that. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I think it's, you know, I think they're making the best that they can out of the situation. And, um, you know, I think uh, it probably won't be, a, you know, the most watched baseball season, uh, but at the same time, probably a lot of people who are looking for something else to do at this point. So um, it might attract some interest there, but, uh, you know, I would also think just uh, with, you know, fewer numbers of fans going on, fewer numbers of actual events being held that potentially if, if these were going to be maybe targets in the past, if someone was looking to, um, you know, use this as a target for whatever operation it was, maybe they'll look to something else. Um, so it might be, you know, just a, a reason uh, to, you know, just for other sectors uh, to be mindful of uh, that potential. Um, so, you know, certainly hope that that's, uh, you know, uh, not the case that there's just no other activity uh, that threatens other sectors, of course, but uh, potential. I mean, if I'm a if I'm a threat actor and I'm looking to cause maximum, you know, damage and disruption, I'm not probably going to go after the the venue that maybe has a lot fewer folks in it that didn't did in the past. Maybe look elsewhere. So maybe some of the other targets that have been talked about in the past uh, and haven't really seen that much activity. Maybe they'll get a little more attention. Well, yeah, so you bring up a great point there, Chuck, and, and I, I know, you know, we were going to shift up the agenda a little bit. Initially, we were going to follow here with some drone talk, but I think you, you know, bleeding into both what you and Bridget had captured on is a little bit of some of these threat activities uh, related around sporting events, and we know that uh, around the world, you know, extremists or terrorist groups have used sports venues as um, as potential target locations. We, we concerts or other high-profile areas where there's a, a lot of people in a small amount of um, area it has been a really big target for threat actors. And, and so let's just kind of follow in on that. O I guess over the last month there have been a series of reports. Uh, Europool put out a report, the uh, START, uh, which is based with connection with the University of Maryland, they had a, um, a series of reports about um, how kind of terrorism and extremism has kind of worked out over the last uh, couple months or actually since the start of the year with COVID and the restrictions. Um, and they mentioned, you know, that obviously there's been a decrease over the last uh, 12, 12 months or so, and, and that's probably understandable. However, they all caution generally that um, radically, uh, radical ethnic and, and um, motivated, you know, hate-based groups are, are kind of on the rise now. And, and this is something we talked about earlier, you know, a couple podcast episodes about, about, you know, being at home and having a lot of time on your hands to, to kind of sew in some of this you know, this methodology or ideology that some of these groups have, you know, Bridget, I'll, I'll come back to you again to start, you know, what, what do you see um, with the outlook moving forward with some of these groups? I mean, we've, we had the Boogaloo movement in loss, you know, has been popping up here and there. We've had, you know, these anti-Black Lives Matters groups. We've had a lot, you know, Portland is really in a really tough situation right now with, a mix of what they're trying to, you know, protest and then groups infiltrating in there. Where, where do you kind of see things right now from your vantage point? 
Well, I think um, as far as like the, the mix of the protests and coronavirus happening at the same time, um, so, you know, two, two areas where you have extremists who thrive on vulnerability um, and they see vulnerable situations where people can move in. Um, you know, in, in, in some respects, you have groups um, probably more of like the, the boogaloo, the white supremacist variety who are looking at ways of actively um, being able to take advantage of this kind of instability. Um, and then on the, the front of Islamic extremists, they're still, you know, thinking of ways, um, you know, even to the extent that uh, they see how a biological agent can wreak havoc upon a society. So they're kind of rethinking in their minds how they might start exploring WMD a little bit more. But, you know, for example, this past 4th of July, um, ISIS usually always issues a bunch of threats, you know, exploding Statue of Liberty, um, you know, threatening different uh, venues. We've had arrests in the past for, for people who are going to be targeting, people who are out watching fireworks and things like that. Um, but they were just kind of quiet this year and they weren't quiet about, they were just quiet about the holiday, you know, not about things at large. And they're basically just kind of sitting back and enjoying right now watching coronavirus ravage our country. And then you have uh, Al Qaeda, who has been stoking for the longest time, um, kind of a more sophisticated, uh, greater long range attack plan than ISIS and saying, you know, we, we need a destabilized economy in Western countries. We need destabilized countries. Um, and, you know, we, we, before they had looked at attacks as a good way to come in and do that. Uh, but even Al Qaeda is kind of sitting back and saying, hey, this corona is pretty cool. You know, it can, it can infect us too and it can infect our people and get to, um, to our operatives. But that they see as a greater benefit you know, how the virus is affecting our economy. Um, and then you had Al-Qaeda recently come across with um, a piece that was, that was basically um, in, in one of their magazines, just, you know, trying, or actually, no, sorry, it was a message from their general command, um, taking advantage of the protests in a most unusual way where they were trying to woo Christian supporters and say, hey, you know, if you don't like racial injustice, if, if you think that you're being treated um, treated badly, you know, come on over to our side, I will defend you, we'll fight for you. And they were quoting the Bible and you know, it was just kind of a, a stance that you haven't really seen from Al Qaeda before. Um, but it also demonstrates how flexible terror groups are and how wily they are and how they're really going to try to wedge themselves into any issue that's going on. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. And, you know, with all of the, so many things going on within our country and, and even looking ahead to the presidential election and all of this kind of back and forth rhetoric that's, you know, almost like, peeling or eating the country from the inside out, you know, these group, you know, I wonder if, you know, these groups are, 
you know, just saying, look, why do we need to do anything at this point? I mean, these things are taking care of themselves and there's discontent already. I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see how that may play out. I'm also interested to see is what's the impact that this virus has had on, on them and areas of the world that they may be that may not have the medical uh, facilities as well. I, I think this is just such an interesting dynamic that, you, you know, as we've all mentioned, there's so much uncertainty still about the disease, you know, and there's so many despair, you know, I guess there's so much unclear as from country to country about how they report and how they handle things. It'd be interesting to see how things shape out in a, in a couple months. Travis, turning to you here on, you know, this extremist type of activity, you know, what do you kind of see or what, what does it, what worries you about what you're seeing kind of with these groups and, and some of these movements that have been ongoing and, and the ability for them to kind of, I, I don't know if it's it's come more out into the open or if it's just uh, this is they're seeing their opportunity as now to kind of come out. Well, they're they're amorphous, um, and they're the intersectionality of it has been a uh, thing that should be of great interest to everyone because uh, whoever has the football, for lack of a better metaphor, at the time and is running and gaining yardage. Uh, is the one that that, that that people will get behind. And that's that's true on both sides of the fence. So um, if you're on the left side of the fence um, and how you feel politically and something is, is you have a groundswell going your way, um, you will have other groups that are going to come on and, 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 and join up with you. And, and the same same thing on the right. So that's that's the, the two groundswells that are helping, you know, to propel this constant angst back and forth between the two. So, you know, now you have the big obvious, uh, you know, police back the police protest movement that is that is proliferating across the United States. And every time one of those pops up, now you have obviously an opportunity for, for the other side and these clashes continue. And so instead of de-escalation, we're, we're seeing more and more and more. Um, and that's problematic, obviously, just from a societal standpoint and dealing with it. But the biggest thing, and, and quite frankly, we've been very surprised that this has not happened yet, is that this has created such an opportunity to do a, a uh, you know, have an extremist group, uh, an ideological extremist group do an attack um, because of the ability to morph into the nothingness, meaning that you don't, whether you're a lone wolf or even if you're organized, there's so, so much chaos already in those particular areas whereby you know, whatever device you want to leave will be overlooked. Um, escape routes are going to be overlooked. Your faces are already masked. Identification is difficult. So we've been very surprised, quite honestly, that, that, that something of that nature has not happened yet and that it, it stayed in the norm of uh, just uh, oppositional violence and, and, and looting and whatnot, as opposed to a, a specific, more traumatic event. Yeah, I, th I actually, you know, that's, that is a great uh, point. I mean, with all the ability to kind of blend in with some of these uh, events and stuff, things have really not, not gone to that one degree over the other. I, I do find that interesting. It is something worth considering moving forward for organizations to think about from the security standpoint 
uh, always being vigilant on on guard. Ch- Chuck, you know, you, you deal a lot with you know critical you, critical infrastructure and a lot of different areas, um, and and kind of what you had talked about at the end of your comments there, you know, you know, shifting away from you know some of these traditional venues that they may be. Um, thinking about where sporting events or, or such the, that big, big concert venues and such. Do you worry about the critical infrastructure nodes, you know, energy and water uh, and those type of uh, utilities? Yeah, I absolutely do. And thanks for your question. And um, yeah, and I think that when it comes to attacks on those types of uh, facilities and on those types of sectors, like one of the, Threat actors that I'm concerned about would be the you know the accelerationist uh, type threat actor or extremist type group you know the types that are looking to you know take advantage of the current situation you know there's a lot of chaos um, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty a lot of fear um, you know the situation is kind of unstable at that time to begin with and then on top of that maybe your security forces police are distracted and you know if you're gonna um, you know, maybe start to surveil our facility or even start to do some actions against the facility, maybe it wouldn't go noticed and it wouldn't be contested as well. So I worry about those types of groups, especially those accelerationist ones. And in, the, in those situations, I think they would probably, again, to like kind of continue uh, what's going on as far as just the instability in society to um, help perpetuate that they would maybe go after something like as you noted something like an electric utility or a water utility disrupting the services and it's really you know making people freak out as a result of that and then I think they have other ideas for what could come uh, after that as well um, and with, with these types of uh, threat actors I think they're not always looking at that kind of those kinds of facilities maybe they're just looking to attack like the, the law enforcement or the security personnel themselves and, and hopefully that for them that leads to you know, I know in some cases they're thinking like a the kind of a civil war uh, outbreak of that. Um, but there have been examples actually in the past, things that I've um, noticed where um, they have involved critical infrastructure, like the ones you mentioned, Dave, as far as, you know, having a plot where they would attack that, again, cause that kind of disruption. And then that would lead to, you know, that would be a, a chain of events that would lead to this like civil war and it leads to kind of like the the overturning of society kind of thing and bringing about this this new society that they have in mind. Um, you know, a lot of this, of course, is, you know, to a lot of this, this seems very far-fetched, but it doesn't, you know, uh, even if it is, it doesn't preclude the fact that maybe they would actually still look to attack these things and they would actually cause some disruptions for some period of time. Um, and I would just like also say, just to add too, as far as just the current environment, um, I just see, you know, with the the socioeconomic situation that we're in right now. And I think this has been talked about um, in a number of publications by a number of different uh, organizations about just how, you know, in times like these, when you have a lot of people who have fallen on hard times, you know, they don't have a job and they're concerned about what's going on. And then they're also, they can be preyed upon with these conspiracy theories. That's like a really ripe population uh, for uh, messaging, you know, propaganda from whether it's a terrorist group or an extremist group. So that, that, as uh, you know, a lot of people potentially for a group to draw from. And I think there was um, uh, one of the publications I read, I know you're noting some of the publications that you've been reading, Dave, and others have as well, but the uh, Combating Terrorism Center at West Point at Sentinel Magazine, and they had a whole issue dedicated to COVID-19 and counterterrorism and 
the impacts uh, that COVID-19 is having on that environment. And one of the people had noted that, um, you know, there's a lot of, there are more terrorists today apparently than there were on 9-11 and that they're probably going to be more as a result of COVID-19. So I think, you know, uh, even though things may be kind of quiet right now, um, you know, with the number of incidents that have happened and there's, you know, the START report, I think you referenced earlier, noted that, that there have been fewer incidents in the last year than there have been in previous years and it's continuing kind of a downward trend. There's still like, there's a lot of potential out there, unfortunately, for this kind of nefarious activity and it might play out here in the not too distant future. Yeah, you hit on two really good points there that I want to kind of follow. Is, you know, one being that, you know, we kind of have to think about different types of, of threats that these people can bring about, these extremists or, or terrorist groups can bring about. Um, being as being security professionals within within our respective organizations, it's really our job to kind of call out the you know not just what we what could happen, but also identify those vulnerable times and locations that are possible as well. And, and we need to evaluate our 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 controls in those areas. What is our security situation like in those areas? And apply the appropriate level. But the other part too is, you know, when you have a lot of time on your hands and, and, and Bridget even touched on it too, the propaganda machine that comes out, it's also the disinformation machine, you know, as it relates to COVID, as it relates to vaccines, as it relates to um, masks, for example. I did a series of reports over the last couple of weeks now about the, the various ways that people are not only inciting others uh, with disinformation online, but also just the, the promulgating of misinformation um, by just people who may not know any better or who don't fact check or who don't research sor sources, that really causes and can help spread some of this recruitment type of activity and stuff. So if I wanna look at the next two things here, and I'll start with you, Travis, there was a report a couple of weeks ago from about, you know, related to drones and, and you know, you're a pseudo drone expert, but, um, you know, talking about the various ways drones can be used, um, you know, whether, especially in today, and I'm, I'm actually frankly surprised we haven't seen more of this, but, you know, in 2017 in the battle for Mosul, Iraqi forces and ISIS forces use drones and modify drones in various capacities to really help in close quarter combat uh, between one another. And I, I thought that might've been the tipping point to take a lot of these commercial drones, the ones that are less expensive now and maybe modified or adapted to, to kind of be used more uh, in various situations, it, you know, and even with the swarming capability, maybe some reconnaissance, networking stuff type of things you know looking at the drone stuff but also looking at the disinformation it kind of what what are your thoughts on those two areas i know it's a big topic i know you could probably talk all day on it but you know what what, what do you think on those areas well for the operational side again the problem is that for the small commercial drones you know, the United States now it has proliferated, obviously, with 
you know, some of our, our, our partners and some antagonistic states have also gotten into the heavier duty drones, uh, you know, that fly, you know, 5, 10, 20,000 feet. But the smaller commercial drones, the reason we haven't seen the proliferation of them used in attacks over here so much is, again, because you can't get your hands, it's much more difficult to get your hands on high explosives over here. And, you know, 20 millimeter, 40 millimeter grenades and whatnot, which is what they were using over there. Uh, an individual, you know, as crude as, as rudimentary as putting a shuttlecock on, on it and doing a servo motor and letting them go. Um, so, you know, they have the access to those materials over there, which that, that's one of the reasons proliferation. But they also learned, and they learned very quickly, that they could put up a drone, put it in silent mode, and which it's not doing any cavitation, so radar couldn't even pick it up. And that's one of the reasons counter UAS systems have been so sought after by the military, to be able to understand you know, where they are because they would guide VBIDs in. They would wake them up just long enough to guide a VBID in and then shut them back down. So obviously a vexing problem, uh, particularly in the sandy spaces. Over here, again, the problem, one of the problems you run into is you, most of the stuff will be HME, homemade explosives, and, and those are by their nature heavier because the componentry is obviously uh, difficult, you know, pipe bombs and whatnot. Um, and to have a more of a, a penetrative impact, you need those, those high explosives to do those kinds of things. In terms of the swarming and, and such, this is all not future state. I mean, this is all stuff that is coming uh, already in the in theater in, in some respects, being planned in theater in some respects. Um, so, the, you know, it's, it's like everything else. It, it, there's a lot of good uh, that can come from, from them and will be in the future. And uh, along with all the good, there will be plenty of bad um, that will come with them as well. And we just, you know, the, 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 the problem of the states with our regulatory issues, and this goes to, you know, Charles knows this, is there's still no policy, even though it was supposed to be promulgated back in, you know, uh, by 2017 for how to protect critical infrastructure. And there's a host of different reasons why, and I could go into that ad nauseum. Um, but there's paralysis there. And as a result, um, you know, you may be able to buy some different technologies to understand what's out there in your environment, but you, if you consider it a threat actor, you can't do anything about it proactively. And two, being able to determine intent is another hindrance. So uh, the short answer is everything and all above. Yeah, no, that's great insight. And it, it, it is really important to make those distinctions. I mean, you, I think, thanks for calling those out, because I mean, really within the United States, there's so many more controls in place. And when you're in a war zone, munitions may be a little bit easier to come across. But I do, I, 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 you really hit on a lot of, some of these things may seem like they're far away, the future state, but in fact, they are, they are capable now of doing these. And I think it's important for us to, to, to consider those. Bridget, you, last week you wrote a great article on, you know, conspiracy theory extremism and, and what, what that kind of stuff can do, when, especially when it gets online and, and vi goes viral. Can you talk a little bit more about that as we talk, you know, about the disinformation aspects of it? 
Sure. So last week um, we hosted for law enforcement uh, a webinar on conspiracy theory extremism. So I wrote this piece in advance of that. And it's interesting because the questions that we got from the members of the law enforcement community um, were, were pretty basic, but it kind of underscored how there's still a lot of knowledge or a lot of a lack of knowledge among people who may be facing this type of extremism in their local jurisdictions. Uh, questions like, okay, so what is this QAnon? <laughs> you know, I don't get it. Right. Um, so what I did in the article was basically divided uh, current conspiracy theories into kind of three batches that are posing um, the greatest risk right now. Um, and that was uh, conspiracy theory extremism around the coronavirus. Um, everything from the anti-mask campaigns that affect public health to the anti-vaccination campaigns um, to being sure that Bill Gates is trying to microchip everybody, et cetera, um, to uh, destruction of 5G towers and uh, threats or attacks on telecommunications employees because of this weird conspiracy theory that says that 5G towers are spreading coronavirus. Um, and then there's QAnon, of course, and we've had uh, several various attacks. Um, you know, for example, the Comet Ping Pong Pizzagate parlor here in DC uh, is actually coming under fresh threats right now. And the owner there attributes it to, you know, things heating up with, uh, with, with the election again, with QAnon really getting going on social media, et cetera. Um, and then what we saw, you know, how QAnon was the basis for the Wayfair conspiracy theory that was going around on Twitter a uh, week before last that was saying that, you know, high priced mistakes on the site were like some sort of cover for human trafficking. And if you ordered this high priced item, you really got a person, et cetera. So you can just imagine like if Wayfair was actually a brick and mortar store, you know, what threat its employees and its customers you know, might face on the same vein as Pizzagate. And then the, uh, the conspiracy theory that's basically, um, you know, causing some of the most devastating extremist violence is the great replacement theory, um, saying that white populations are targeted for replacement by multiculturalism with the complicity of leaders. Um, they usually say Jewish leaders. And that dovetails with um, this white genocide theory that we've seen um, both with Brenton Tarrant in New Zealand um, and with the shooter down in the El Paso, El Paso Walmart. And, you know, I think it's, it's really important to remember that the underlying thread of people buying, buying these conspiracy theories is the desire to ascribe an importance to their lives for whatever reason they, that feeling is lacking because through a conspiracy theory believer, suddenly they know the truth and they are going to valiantly throw themselves in between Bill Gates and his COVID microchips, or they're suddenly an Intel level genius who derives a Q message in some brain fart tweet, or they're going to supposedly save whites from supposed extinction. Now you compare that to the reason that people join extremist groups like ISIS or Al Qaeda or Al Shabaab or Adam Waffen or the base or the KKK, you know, they're searching for this meaning or belonging as an outlet for their frustration and anger, for their feelings of inadequacy, et cetera. So you see why conspiracy theorists shouldn't always be dismissed 
as harmless crackpots, um, as there is a potential for a gateway to extremism there. You know, and, and even if you believe in like the white replacement or white genocide theories, the extremist is already there. When you're calling for someone to kill John Podesta because you think he's behind basement pizza parlor slaves, the extremist is already there. And when you're actively trying to prevent people from preventing COVID spread, the extremist is already there and probably fighting someone in Walmart for wanting you to wear a mask. Yeah, so many great points there. I mean, I think, I think it's when you hear about so many of these things, I mean, my initial thing is to roll my eyes and just to, like and scoff it off. But, but then you see and you read some of these comments on some of the, you know, whether if it's on social media or elsewhere, you, you, there are people who, who like are so committed to this line of thinking and, and so committed to that, it really takes a lot to undo. And, and you're right, there, if we, by that point, there's already somebody else who's farther beyond um, and, and farther along that, that process. Um, even normal news stories, it's, it's funny to see, you know, I, I, use, I use a social media platform to get a lot of quick news sometimes and occasionally I'll read through the comments and, and it's really just interesting to see how immediately dismissive they are of the article just based on the source or based on what was said and it, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, Chuck, from a from an organizational standpoint, and, and in your roles and capacities over the years, you know, what are some things that you know that you can think of or that you've seen that might be able to help organizations plan and prepare for these type of, you know, maybe having an extremist who's you know, I hate the, it's a hard way to describe it, but maybe to, to kind of find, identify some suspicious behaviors in the workplace that may be issues moving forward. Are there, are there anything that you've seen that, that has worked? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, information sharing is always key. Um, uh, you know, if you're an organization and, and you're seeing something, at your uh, respective site, uh, maybe it was also observed by someone else in the area and maybe earlier too, so that can kind of give you a, a heads up. So I always encourage people, whether that's, you know, I, I've represented and worked on behalf of ISACs, Information Sharing Analysis Centers, so I've always encouraged, um, you know, uh, people or organizations who have the ability to join those to, to take advantage of that because um, they provide a lot of information as far as, you know, what others are experiencing and what to be on the lookout for. And I think in those, with those organizations, they put that information in the context of what, you know, um, those that what that sector actually experiences. So, you know, what does surveillance look like in that sector and what does, um, you know, what does some other malicious activity look like, you know, mistress, misrepresent, sorry, misrepresentation or, you know, sabotage incidents, things like that. So those organizations put those things in terms that I think are more tailored and more relevant and just make sense. Uh, so I think those are things to engage in. And it doesn't always necessarily need to be a, um, you know, an organization like that. I would just, there. I think there are a lot of information sharing organizations out there. Um, you know, they're regionally focused. Uh, you, can, you know, of course, link up with your fusion center. And they provide a lot of training um, about that, kind of what they're being to look out for, uh, suspicious indicators uh, or, or indicators of suspicious activity, uh, things like that. Um, 
and obviously there's if uh, kind of going up to like the the federal government level, there are PSAs, uh, Protective Security Advisors that DHS has, and they uh, make available uh, to the entities who reach out to them and who work with them a lot of resources, uh, both like, you know, guides that talk through, you know, what, what does, uh, you know, a suspicious activity look like or what, you know, what should I consider to be malicious, um, not just even from outsiders, but from insiders too. Maybe that could be uh, you know, uh, someone who is on the path to uh, conducting, a, you know, an active shooter type of an incident or just, you know, um, uh, something else, an active workplace aggression or hostility against others. Um, so there are a lot of resources, I think, from, you know, PSA program as well. Uh, there are exercises that one can conduct. I think, you know, you can train, you can learn about these things. Um, put a lot of effort into that, but ultimately you have to do exercises and DHS convenes those a lot of uh, resources out there too, where organizations can, um, you know, do those internally. And I think there's a lot of value in those as well. Uh, so, you know, I would just, I would just really, you know, people encourage everyone to like kind of lean forward on that. There's just so many, the, the um, I would say we're, there's a lot of resources out there and encourage people to take advantage of those. And, um, you know, I mean, at the same time that, you know, with the, you know, just the abundance of things out there, it's maybe hard to know where to start, but then in that case, look towards some of the people who have, whether those peers in your sectors or again, the PSAs or someone at your ISAC who really can steer you in the right direction as far as where to get started on that because it can be pretty overwhelming, especially if you're representing maybe a small organization that doesn't have a lot of time to put into uh, really, you know, standing up, having someone who's dedicated to that task full time, 100% of their time kind of thing, but you can only do it some of the time, but, you know, definitely needs to be given some attention and everyone needs to have some awareness of that because ultimately, you know, and, you know, um, you know, I used to be uh, in the Navy and um, I was actually an anti-terrorism force protection officer. And one of the things we said was like, this is an all hands effort, you know, just me as an anti-terrorism force protection officer and, you know, the, the, the staff that I have, it's not just on us looking for these things, it's on everyone looking for these things, um, because the likelihood of us, us being the ones who actually notice things uh, are a lot less than if, you know, everyone's looking for these things. And um, that's naturally that's a kind of posture that you need. So making sure that you're training the entire organization on that kind of, um, you know, just, just knowing those kinds of things and knowing how to respond. Yeah, great, great, great stuff, uh, Chuck. And uh, you did mention it, it is overwhelming. There's a lot of stuff out there. What I'll try to do is put in the podcast show notes for our loyal listeners out there. I'll put in uh, some of those links into the podcast show notes, and then you can find those as well as some links to the articles that we discussed today. Look, this was a great discussion. I, we probably could have spent another hour talking more about it and digging deep into each one of these issues. I, I might just have to make, you know, future ones just about a one topic because you really can go into so many different levels. And then Chuck, you had to pull an insider threat there at the end. And that, that's a whole separate area that I, I think would might be worth worth the deep dive into. But I do want to thank our, our panelists today, Bridget, Travis, and Chuck. Um, real quick, but you know, as we typically do on the on the way out the door here, let's just go back around the room for a little parting shot, as well as a plug for anything you want to uh, notice. Uh, Bridget, you mentioned your uh, webinar last week. 
Um, if you have any additional information you want to plug, uh, now's the time to do it. So Bridget, any, any parting shots and, and plugs? Well, we do have uh, webinars coming up in there for law enforcement or gov. Um, so nobody with Gmail addresses registering. Uh, so we have one coming up on arson terrorism. We have one coming up, coming up on uh, rising anti-Semitism and associated violence. We have one on incel terrorism. And then we have a WMD one coming up. So we've got some really good experts lined up for that. Great, and, and where can they find you online? You, you do Twitter, right? I do Twitter. Uh, I am at uh, Bridget CJ and uh, log on to hstoday.us to read Homeland Security today. And uh, definitely subscribe to our terror newsletter, which is one of our uh, weekly newsletters, um, topical ones. And the terror one comes out on every Tuesday. Awesome. Thank you, ma'am. And thanks for all your contributions today. Uh, Travis, uh, any parting shots or plugs? Uh, no parting shots, um, except that I hope sports come, do come back in the fall, but I, again, <laughs> pessimistic. Uh, just know if you have any questions or, or, or thought processes, the, the concerns regarding you know, activism and how it affects your organization, you can certainly reach me at travis.moran at welland, W-E-L-N-D.com. Uh, that's it, and I appreciate the time as always. Great. I really do ha love having you on here, Travis. And, and we might, we could start a lacrosse pod on another yeah. channel if we wanted to. <laughs> should. <We> should. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ch Chuck, uh, new to the group this, this month, and we hope to have you back for future ones, but any parting shots or plugs on your, your behalf? Yeah, maybe we'll just do some uh, plugs and, and um, just wanted to say thanks, Dave, for the opportunity. As Dave noted, it's my first time doing it, enjoyed it, and, and do hope to be back. Um, but uh, I won't plug Gate 15 because I think, you know, Dave, I'll leave that to him to do. Um, but uh, I just wanted to put another plug in for the ISAC, uh, ISACs, the ISAC Community Information Sharing Analysis Center. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't do that, given that I've been involved with them uh, for so long. And so, you know, I noted that in my, my comments and the last, uh, you know, the last set of comments that I made, but I would just encourage our listeners to look into the, uh, the ISACs and see if uh, maybe you'd be eligible for joining one if you're not a member already. A lot of ISACs you can join uh, for free. Um, that might not be something that, you know, uh, pertains to you, but uh, for some organizations that is something. Um, but there's probably an ISAC just for, for about everyone out there or even an ISAL, that's an information sharing or sorry, information sharing analysis organization. Um, but I would just encourage everyone to look into those great uh, sources of information, um, can really help you through responses, recoveries, uh, they do exercises. And so just, yeah, I would just put a plug in for them and encourage our listeners to look into that and see if they might be eligible to um, join them. But thank you. Yeah, thank, thanks, Chuck. And I, I can't read That's going to be my parting shot as well. Is just it, look. This is a lot of information. It's a lot. It's very overwhelming. We like to do it in a lot of different platforms and means and such. And there's a lot of great opportunities. You know, whether it be webinars, uh, YouTube channels. Uh, I know DHS and CISA has have those up and running. Um, there are the ISACs and ISALs. Um, reach out. I mean, I think the biggest thing is to find those those things. There's a lot of free resources and materials out there. There's a lot of great information out there. 
um, to, to don't just sit back, be proactive, reach out and engage, and, and really you could be, uh, help reduce the risk to your organization. And with that, I think we'll just wrap things up again on, a, on behalf of all of our panelists here today. I'm Dave Pounder, and I do appreciate your time listening to us today. Um, and we will be back next month uh, with another Nerd Out uh, podcast, but also feel free to listen to the rest of the Gate 15 podcasts uh, coming up. We've, we've got the Cyber Evangelist, we've got the Gate 15 interview, and then we also have the uh, Risk Roundtable. So look up the Gate 15 podcast channel, and we look forward to uh, talking with you soon. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave, Travis, Chuck. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.